0: Welcome to the Real Estate Ventures Podcast. In this podcast, we will be speaking with various real estate and business professionals about real estate investing, entrepreneurship, and financial freedom. So, if you're interested in learning about real estate investing, then stay tuned and be sure to take advantage of the free tips and strategies that will be shared by our weekly guests. And now, your host, Penny
1: Lubinsky. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Real Estate Ventures Podcast. This is Penny Lubinsky, and today I have a really, really amazing guest, Andrew Cushman. Andrew had started in real estate during the Great Recession. He started with single-family fix and flips. He's finished 27 of those successfully and profitably. And he then transitioned in 2011 to multifamily, acquiring and repositioning over 1,800 units up until this point. That is a really, really impressive um, bio. And with that, I'd like to bring Andrew into the podcast. Andrew, welcome.
0: Oh, thanks, Penny. Glad to be here.
1: Yeah, so happy you're here today. And I just would like to start with going back to the beginning. And if you could just help walking everybody through what you kind of did before real estate and what led you down this path
0: so yeah i, I took the, the standard path into real estate i uh, got a chemical engineering degree the uh and then the reason i did that is because when i was in high school i liked chemistry and i liked problem solving i'm like so, um and i said well hey i can at least if i go chemical engineering i can at least have a job that will pay decent and then i can tolerate until i figure out what i really want to do because i knew even in high school i wanted to have my own business or kind of do my own thing uh, so i became a chemical engineer did that for about seven and a half years got married in the meantime my wife and I started exploring like business different business opportunities we could do. We discovered the house flipping, as you mentioned. So we did our first one in 2007. Uh, that was successful. So I went and quit my job and went into doing the house flipping full time in Southern California. Uh, you know, high dollar, high equity uh, state. So it's great for flipping. Not good for cash flow so much, but great for flipping. And we did that full time for about four years and said, "This is a great business, but you're only as good as your last deal." Meaning you buy a property, you sell it, you get a check and there's nothing left, you're done. All right, you have to have to go find the next one. She so said, all right, well, what, what creates more lasting income? And also what's gonna do really well from this point forward, right? This is, we we're having this conversation basically in 2010. And we said, well, all right, all these people are getting foreclosed on, so they can't buy a house for seven years. So they're gonna go rent. Also, we just had a, a major recession which means we're starting probably a significant expansion, which means more jobs, more household formation. So we said, you know, that probably means apartments are gonna do well. So uh, we went and actually hired a mentor, someone who'd done about 800 units he kind of taught us the business as we looked at deals and did our first deal. Our first one was 92 mostly vacant units on the other side of the country in Macon, Georgia, and uh, went full-time uh, and since then. We've done, like you said, about 1,800 units. We focus on uh, C plus to B plus assets in the Southeast United States, so.
1: Cool, wow, super cool. So, Andrew, let me just rewind a little bit. When you were um, looking for properties, uh, back single family properties during the recession, Um, Was that something that you found easy or hard? Like what was it like finding, getting a hold of that first property?
0: It was exceedingly difficult because we were, you know, this was, like I said, 2007, that's 13 years ago. That's before a lot of the automated systems that house flippers use now were were in place. So it was a brutal manual business. We were um, getting lists of people who had foreclosure notices and calling them, cold calling them or knocking on their door and saying, hey, basically saying, well, we understand you're in difficult situation. Is there any way we could help? And what we tried to do is, you know, we tried to walk them through all of the various ways to not sell or lose their house, right? Well, you can do this to get a modification. Just everything that we could do to try to help them stay in their house, we did, with the intent being, or the hope being, okay, 99 out of 100 people we we're to, we're to talked to are gonna end up keeping the house. But for the one person that it just, they truly have no way to keep the house, we would hope, our hope was, hey, if we authentically and truly tried to help them, if they do need to sell it, they'll choose to sell it to us, right? And so that and that was that was the business model that we used. Um, so yeah, it was I mean, I would it was you know seven days a week. It took six because I was working full time too, so was my wife, right? So I'd make calls before work in the morning. I'd eat while I worked so that I could during lunch I'd go park my car under a tree in the shade and make phone calls for an hour, right? I'd get off of work, go to the gym, come home and make phone calls to nine o'clock at night. And that was basically seven days a week until we got our first one. So yeah, it was actually it was very very difficult uh, to get started in flipping with that particular uh, avenue of doing it, uh, but again, it is more than worth doing, uh, and it's, as it you know obviously led to, to bigger and better things. So.
1: Cool, very cool. And I think I heard you say that it took you around six months to until um, you actually got your first your first property. So, just something I'd like to point out to the listeners is that you know people often hear that it's a numbers game, and you know the numbers are out there, but many people are not aware enough as to how many numbers they're going to have to, you know, get through, how many numbers, how many calls, how many doors, how many everything they're going to have to do in order to get that first deal. So I actually wrote a a blog post about this and it's on my website. And it just, it talks about like, if you believe in the process and it has proven to be to, to work, then it's something that you need to just follow and you know just just go along with it and you need to understand your industry how many numbers are considered normal how many are considered average not just to say oh i knocked on five doors or i called five people and or ten people and like i haven't no bites yet don't quit don't give up
0: well i have a number for you do you, you want to guess how many how many phone calls i had to make until we got the first deal
1: uh yeah sure okay so based off speaking to people um based off speaking to something i would say a couple hundred you probably have to call a
0: couple hundred so I was not very good at at, call, at cold calling um so it took me four thousand five hundred and seventy six phone calls until we got our first deal wow so, okay so- now I got good at it over that process but it took a tremendous amount of persistence uh to, to make that happen
1: Wow. So that's amazing. Is that, is that above uh, industry standards or is that like, where did that rank? It's-
0: I have no yeah. idea what industry standard would be, uh, especially for something like that. I mean, you're basically calling a stranger and saying, hi, let's talk about your financial problems. Right. I mean, that's not, that that's not, that's not your best icebreaker. Um, so the, you know, those are often difficult conversations to get started, to keep going and, uh, to to talk people off the ledge, and of course you also have to learn to to know what you're talking about, so you, you actually can help people. Um, so it was, it was a really difficult you know thing to do. And and I we we had a hired coach, and then my wife would actually sit there and listen to me, and I'd get off the phone. And she'd be like, "Okay, honey, that was good, but next time you know say this or that or whatever." So it was a, it was a brutal uh, learning process, but again, more than worth it. So
1: right, no, that's super cool that you were able to punch through that many numbers until you actually got your deal. I was wondering like. Did did you ever think about quitting in that time? Because like you know, I, I mean I'm assuming after like 3,000, it must have been like you must have been questioning something, right? Well,
0: we, we we definitely believed in the process. We knew that it could it it did it could work, it could be done. Uh, we believed in our ability to execute it. However, I would I think it was probably around month five or so we were definitely starting to get burned out uh working full-time jobs and doing all of that on top of it uh we were starting to ask the question okay how much longer can we can we maintain this uh and so um, you know but you know part of it too is we had paid for the training and and the coaching and all that so it's like well we're at least going to get our money back yeah you, know, you know we're not you know we're not going to pay all this money for something and then just not do it and then of course we got the first deal the first deal basically made as much as I made all year at my job and said, All right, that's it. I'm quitting. The job's holding me back now. Right. If I can if we can make more money on, on, on one house, then that means the job's holding me back. So uh, that's the point at which I left the uh, left left the job.
1: Wow. Okay. That that's incredible. And and essentially that first deal has led to the second, the third, the twenty-seventh, and then eventually to all the multifamily deals, the eighteen hundred reposition. So it's amazing that that one deal and nobody knows how far they are from it. And the book um, Three Feet From Gold talks about this a lot, like how you can't quit because you never really know you may be an inch away, you may be a foot away, and be your next call, and that can lead, that can totally change your entire life. So that's just amazing and, and very inspiring. Um, I'd like to transition now to a little bit, um, talk a little bit more about multifamily. Um, I'm wondering when you're selecting a market, what are some of the things that you're going to look at, you're going to look for in the market, some key metrics or you know how are you choosing, how are you selecting?
0: We have a, we have a very specific screening process for markets and even if from from the macro level all the way down to the the neighborhood level. And it's based on you know we're looking for a population growth uh, I, you know, it has to be positive. Ideally, it's higher than the national average. So the national average, you know, depending on what source you get, is right around you know 0. 0.6 or 0.66 percent a year. So we want to be in a market that's maybe you know 1 percent growth or higher. That means you you know it's it's growing it's growing faster than than the the nation as a whole. Uh, we want to be in areas where the median income makes the rent at the property we're gonna own affordable to the vast majority of people in that market. So what does that mean? So that means that the average person may, you know, only has to spend, let's say roughly 25% of their income, gross income on rent at our apartment complex. So if it costs $10,000 a year to rent a unit at one of our apartments, then we wanna make sure that the median income in that area is 40,000. Because that means the median person can 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 rent our apartment and only spend twenty five percent of their their income on our units. And the reason you want that is one, the economics of your property, right? If you are renting to folks who can barely afford the rent, and then they get a flat tire, or you know the hours are cut back at their job, then all of a sudden they can't pay rent, right? Or so COVID happens. Yeah, or COVID happens, or yeah, all kinds of. So so you know you you want to have. Uh, you, your rent be affordable to the to, to the majority of rent people who live or move to that area. Um, and I'd say that the kind of the upper limit for affordability, it tends to be about 35% above that. It, it's considered rent burdened. So that's that's a really, really important one for us. Uh, we also don't just, we'd also just have a hard cutoff at 35,000. We won't go below that uh, because we found out no matter what the rent is, uh, the difficulty of managing uh, that the the demographics below thirty five uh, goes up exponentially. Delinquency, vacancy goes up exponentially, and headache goes up exponentially. The further below you get thirty five thousand, uh, and kind of tied with that is crime. We don't we do not buy in areas where there are high crime rates. Um, now, if we if we look at a property in just that property maybe has some crime, but it's in a good neighborhood. That could be an opportunity, right? Because you can you can fix a property, you can manage it well, put in you know security cameras and a courtesy officer and screen residents and not tolerate you know bad behaviors. You can clean a property up, but you can't clean up the neighborhood. So if there's crime in the area or the neighborhood, that's a that's an absolute no for us. Um, and can, and also if if someone who's looking at properties that you know are in crime areas, uh, the agencies, Fannie and Freddie Mac, they also stay away from high crime areas. So you might have trouble getting a loan uh, if the property that you're looking at in the neighborhood uh, has has crime issues. We don't buy in flood zones. That's just kind of a, that that that's more of a business decision for us because if we're in a flood zone and the property 100 yards down the street is not we're at a competitive disadvantage because we have to pay for very expensive flood insurance that they don't have to pay for and residents aren't going to pay higher rent because you need flood insurance right they don't care they just like well, i'm, I'm going to pay this much for a nice apartment and if your your property floods and all the downstairs units get lost to flooding and you end up on the news uh that's it's just you know, number one it's, it's heartbreaking for your residents and then two uh, you're going to have a tougher time leasing, um, you know, down the road. You sometimes for a couple of years after something like that happens. And, I, and I've seen that happen in, in certain properties and certain markets, fortunately not ours, but so those, those are some of the things that we screen for.
1: Mm-hmm. Got it. Now um, for the person out there listening, that happens to be living in a market that doesn't have this criteria um what advice would you give them like would, would you say it's difficult to go across the country like i know i think you did on your first deal you didn't do right in your market um no. like how difficult is that to do like out of out of your own market
0: well one i would say live where you want to live and invest where Invest where you get the returns that you want that, that you're looking to get, right? So yeah, I live in California. I would not, I don't invest here for a lot of reasons. Uh, all of our investments uh, are in the Southeast U.S. We did have about 800 units in Texas. Um, it's really not more difficult. The key is to build the right build the right team and put the right people in place. Um, so yes, you're, you're correct. Our first one was, you know, in Georgia and we you know did that from California and then everything after that was Georgia, Florida, and Texas. Uh, David Green wrote a great book. Um, I think long distance real estate investing, it's focused on single family, but it applies just as much to multifamily. And it talks all about how you build that team and put those people in place. Right. So like, for example, now if, uh, if we've got a, uh, you know, uh, an urgent uh, off-market deal to look at in Atlanta, we have people that can go take a look, right? I'm not gonna like, okay, I gotta get on a plane, I gotta fly to Atlanta. No, we have, we have people local who will go do that for us, um, and so it, it comes to you know building broker relationships, which that's through the you know phone calls and yes, you going out to the market occasionally. Uh, it's uh, finding management companies that can, can help you with, you know, management and, and market knowledge and all of that. It's, you know, f- uh, finding contractors, it's uh, finding attorneys, you know, all of those people. But once that is in place, uh, it actually becomes easier uh, because with the larger assets, they support, larger assets support staff uh, that, that will handle the day-to-day for you. And then also, I've, 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 met, um, I've, I've met investors that get held back by having properties in their own market. And the reason why is it's way too tempting to get sucked into the day-to-day minutiae of property ownership and property management when it's in your backyard, right? Like, oh, there's a, there's a leak in the, you know, the bathroom tub. Well, you know, it's only five minutes from my house. I'll run over there and take a look at it. You shouldn't be doing that. You're you're an investor. You're you're either investing money in large in, in in large deals, or you're out buying and, and asset managing large deals. And uh, you should have you know a maintenance person or somebody else to do that little you know the little day to day stuff. And if you're going to scale to a couple thousand units or even a few hundred, you you can't be involved in that. Yeah, you, know, you will you will hit your personal bandwidth really quickly.
1: Got it. And th- that makes sense. And that was essentially the reason, from my understanding, why you left single families, because you didn't want it to be um, almost like a full-time job. You wanted the ability to be able to scale and really to have more hands off. Um, so going over to visit the property that would be on the next block, that would be counterproductive and you know would really hold back investors from scaling because they get into that of trying to feel like they can do everything themselves and then maybe they should just uh, sweep the alleys and take out the garbage because they can save money by not not hiring a maintenance crew or whatever so yeah definitely as far as like scalability that makes so much sense and um as far as the book that you mentioned before by david green i actually read that as well and he talks a lot about, you know, setting up really the right team members. And he he, he mentions a lot, a lot of times in the book, um, rock stars, no rock stars. Yep. and The importance of setting up the right team members, the right people that you can actually trust, you know, that have mutual, you know, the same interests as you, um, the same vision, the same business goals, like how important is that? Um, so I'd like to transition to the next question about um, a little bit more about your team. Like, how do you select your team members? Um, what does your team look like right now to be able to do, you know, large um, volume of properties like this?
0: As far as the our, our active team that's uh, um, that's that's involved in in day to day operations, is, of course, we have myself. We have a uh, basically a kind of an office manager slash admin ninja that's been with us for. Uh, geez, I guess seven or eight years now and just kind of knows everything and can can handle everything. And then we have two people that are um, uh, uh, acquisitions and asset management. That's our actual, our core team. And then everything else is is largely third party. So property management is third party. And then what we do is we, we've outsourced property management by bringing in third party property management company, but we keep asset management in-house um, and so what we do is we, we manage the management very, very closely. Uh, and so that's that we found that's been, you know, cause you hear the argument, oh man, no one, no one, no one manages, no one cares about my property like I do, right? Well, that's true, but just cause you care doesn't mean, caring doesn't equal competence, right? We love buying. I love to look for properties that are self-managed because there's usually a ton of opportunity there cause we can bring in professional management and, and, and usually do a better job. But in order for that to work, you have, to have, you have to add management to your team that sees you not as someone that you they just send a report to once a month, but as a partner in business running and managing your properties, right? So we do things like weekly conference calls with all staff on the call, the manager, the maintenance guy, the regional, everybody, right, so that we can get, number one, we can make sure everyone's on the same page, we can provide the vision and the leadership for the property, and also that we can uh, help empower the people who are running our properties to 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 do their job well, and, and my job is to make their job as easy as possible, right, um, so that they can do the best job with the property. And so, the, the property management that that's your most important piece of your team, whether you're managing locally, whether it's local or, or far away. Uh, your property your property is only going to run as good as your as your managers uh, can run them and then beyond that you know brokers that's that that's formed just over time you know calling on properties calling on listings you know attorneys contractors again those, those are things that you tend to add kind of as needed and then, oh, and a big one is is, is lender right because uh, your lender financially is your biggest partner if you're buying a you know 1 million or a ten million dollar deal Deal. They're typically coming in for seventy-five percent of that, right? So they're 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 in in, in one sense they're your biggest partner, so.
1: right? And they're also like they're they're aligned the same way you would be uh, um, almost naturally. And as far as the um, property managers, like, how have you ever had any like horror stories uh, with property managers not producing or not showing that they, that they don't care on the same level that you as the owner would care? Or have you found most of them to be you know pretty competent?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, whether you're self-managing or third party, you're always going to make hiring mistakes, I guess, let's just call it that, right? Or um, things change in people's lives that cause them to change their behaviors, right? So yeah, we, um, we, I, I can think of one in particular where a manager started off fantastic and uh, I believe their personal life had some changes and their performance at the property rapidly deteriorated, uh, and they started, you know, saying and doing things that were not appropriate for a property manager. And so, yeah, we had to let that person go. Uh, and you know, for a few months, uh, the property performance did suffer because you know she was not running it as well. And uh, you know, we. We replaced her, and then of course the new person um, who's you know leading the team there is, done, is doing an amazing job, and the property is doing you know, better than it than it ever has. So yeah, that will happen. The key is to not let it go on for too long, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, don't be afraid to recognize when a person is no longer a good fit for your team and for your property, and and re- also realize that letting someone go in many cases they already know that that's what needs to happen. And surprisingly frequently are relieved when it does happen, right? And sometimes it even frees them up to go do something that is a better fit for them. So it's not always, you know, laying somebody off or saying, hey, you know what, we, we can't work together anymore. Isn't always a, a negative thing. Sometimes it definitely is. I mean, there's no question about it. It's, it's probably one of the, the least fun aspects of the business. But yeah, it, it's, 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 you will make hiring mistakes, and if you do, the, the key is is to correct it quickly.
1: Got it. And um, I'll just add on that. I was just reading a book by Lee Cockerell. He's, he was like the top manager in Disney World. And his perspective on firing is that you're actually doing the person the biggest favor in the world by letting them go because it's obviously not their best talent, their best fit. And and he believes that everybody has a lot of potential and everybody know has something that they're really good at so by letting them go i guess you know in a nice respectful way you're helping them find what they're really good at and then you know that lets them get to the next level of, of their life of their next stage of their career you know successfully so you know that's just his perspective on that um all right so let's transition to the final four these are more rapid question answer style um andrew what's your why
0: uh, it's really. I mean, it's pretty pretty broad based. Um, wh- for me, it's the really the the freedom that commercial real estate brings, and then all of the benefits of that. Right. So, with financial freedom, becomes the ability to spend more time. Uh, you know, with my family, I get, I have the, I have had the blessing to work from home, not since COVID started, but for, for the last 13 years, Wow! right? So that, that, that's a lot of time uh, that I got to have been able to spend with my wife and then now the kids, right? Especially with the kids now, cause they're do, doing school from home, right? <laughs> um, but you know, so, so I have to do to work from home to set my own schedule uh, to take time off when, you know, when I want to to, you know, if, 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 if I, uh, for some reason, just really don't feel like working on something in particular on Friday, I can be like, you know what? I'm gonna go surfing on today and I'll finish that on Saturday, right? Uh, I'm not not locked into a particular schedule. And then, um, the, you know, the financial benefits are significant if you do the business right, if you treat your investors well, uh, if you do good deals. Uh, and there's, there's a lot of things, you know, you the, the more, financial and time resources you have you can help more and more people with that right um so that so that's some of it and I I love to like I've mentioned already I love to surf I love to ski uh I love the freedom to be able to do that when the conditions are good so
1: right that's super cool and I feel like the the time freedom is so valuable like I always I don't know why I have this like image in my head of like being like 58 years old and like going to ask like my boss or somebody going to ask their boss if they can leave work early to go to the dentist or something like that. Like that just like freaks me out. So, you know, being able to control your own time that's crazy valuable. Um all right, next question. What's your favorite book?
0: Yeah, well, my real favorite book is 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 uh Staying Alive in Avalanche Terrain, but that doesn't apply to uh, to real estate. So, <laughs> I would say for for real estate is probably you know, there's there's a couple. I uh, you know, Chris Voss never split the difference. Uh, Jim Camp start with no, and then uh, Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. If you notice, all three of those books are really relationship books. They're not this. You know, they're not. Here's how you buy a house, right? And uh, never split the difference and start with no, or focus more on negotiating. And how to win friends and influence people is just more general relationships, um, and of course, you know how to how to interact with people. And the reason for that is real estate. Yeah, it's numbers. Yeah, it's assets. It's cash flow. It's this and that. But to truly be successful in this business and really any business, it's all about relationships and interacting with people. and how you do that, um, so th- you know those the, those those three books, or at least the concepts that are taught in those books, uh, to me are of, of utmost importance um, and, uh, and above anything else, uh, as far as you know, doing a PL or anything like that. So,
1: got it. Cool. Um, What would be your best advice for somebody just starting out, getting into real estate?
0: Decide what you're going to do, and then pursue it with relentless persistence. Right? Um, You know, if I hadn't made call number four thousand five hundred and seventy six, we probably wouldn't be talking right now. Uh, And and so you know, there's there's you know, sometimes you ask the question, well, geez, you know, how do I know when to quit? Well if you're doing something that you're not sure if it works and you've been doing it for 6 months or a year okay maybe 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 that's something that you know shouldn't be pursuing or doing right but we know real estate works that's one of the beauties of this is you don't have to figure any of it out you can practice r and d right rip off and duplicate and then that's not in a malicious sense that's Find someone who's already successful at what you're doing and all you have to do is copy them. There's trillions of dollars of real estate. There's enough for everybody to do this. So it's not a question of does it work. It's a commitment. It's a question of learning how to do it and then Deciding to persist long enough until you succeed at doing it. So it's that it's that persistence.
1: Super cool. And by the way, I just want to add something on that as well. Um, You mentioned that there's billions of dollars of real estate or, and you know, everybody can be good at this. And I think that there's two different mindsets. There's the scarcity mindset and there's abundance. And I feel like, and people preach this all the time, like if everybody has the abundance mindset that everybody um, will be better off, if everyone helps everybody and everyone shares their value with everybody, then all the investors and everyone that's trying to be good at it is just going to, it's going to raise their game and everybody's going to be able to improve together. So it's not like, Mm -hmm. Oh, I'm sharing with you. So now it's taking away from me to give to you. No, I'm making you better and someone else is making me better. And that person's making someone else better. Everybody's rising together with the tide. So that's like super cool. It's an amazing mindset and like very valuable. Um, What would you say your favorite hobby is outside of real estate?
0: Uh, Backcountry skiing. So okay. that that's where yeah, that's where I don't ride the lift. We 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 pick pick a pick a cool looking mountain and say, all right, we're gonna climb it and then ski it. So
1: cool. Super cool. All right, Andrew, thank you so much. One last question. Where can people reach you if they have any questions or anything else?
0: Yeah, I mean am on all the social media channels, but the best way is just uh go to uh, you can Google vantage point acquisitions, but it's VPACQ.com and there's, uh, there's a couple of tabs on there. One, you can just send us an email and, that, and to, you know, to connect that way is a tab on there about our mastermind for people who are looking, who have already done a deal of some kind or just looking to grow and scale. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's the best way. Go to uh, vpacq.com and look forward to connecting.
1: Yeah, awesome. A- Andrew, thank you so much for joining and thanks for sharing so much value and wishing you lots of luck going forward.
0: All right, good talking with you, Penny. Take care. Take care.
1: Bye-bye.